Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Hey guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start some health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA test on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, like coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy to download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA test kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I tell you what, guys, super excited to have my friend Bo Binkson come back and join us again. You guys had huge rave reviews about his episode on the history of sighthounds. So we're going to broaden that picture a little bit today. And we're going to talk about the entire history of dog shows, which is fascinating and has tremendous impact, I believe, on where we are today and where we may be going in the future. So welcome, Bo. Super excited to have you back. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be back. Excellent. So we did a whole bunch of talking about your background in dogs last time, but talk to us a little bit about your love of the history of purebred dogs and dog shows specifically. We talked about your book, but you bring such passion to this topic that a lot of people think is sort of dusty and boring. So I just wanted you to share that. Yeah, I think you have to be old enough to be almost (laughs) history yourself to become interested in it. I certainly wasn't particularly interested in history when I was young. I don't think you can be. I have always seen it as part of my job, part of my fun job, to be some sort of conduit between the past and the present and show people that it actually can be very interesting to suddenly get a look at what went on in the past. And it can be really interesting. I agree. And because we are dog breeders, the history informs absolutely the present because every dog in a pedigree is the history of the dog standing before you. Right. I can't remember it was Mr. Churchill who said that, but it's very true anyway that if you want to know about the future, you've got to know about the past. And that certainly is true about dog shows as about anything else. It really is true. And and I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. So let's just go through from the town in England, but (laughs) let's start at the beginning and let's kind of go over the whole 
history of how this came to be kind of coming up to modern era? Well, you've got to go several thousand years back, basically, if you want to. I mean, even in the Odyssey, which is Homer, you know, yes. 2,000 years ago, something like that, there is a reference to dogs that, they're slightly derogatory, of course, but still, the people who own dogs for because they're handsome, because they look good. And that's mm. kind of really interesting to me that even in those days, people cared about what dogs looked like. It wasn't necessarily a positive thing, but still. And going through the Middle Ages and forward, you find several references to not just hunting dogs or war dogs or something, but also to luxury dogs or pets or whatever. And it doesn't hurt to be in, totally interested in sight hounds, of course, because greyhounds of all types of greyhounds yes. are very, very frequently ported, as you know, probably, right? And then we get up to the 1800s and middle of 1800s and the Industrial Revolution in England, when suddenly there was a whole new class created by the Industrial Revolution. People who had money and had time on their hands, and what could they better focus on than dogs? You know, that was very interesting to them, and that's where the beginning of the modern dog sport really advanced. You know, I always think it's very interesting if we look at that whole, take that 100 years, say, from the 1850s to the 1950s, mm -hmm. that was, in our understanding, in our modern understanding, really the heyday, the epicenter of competitive dog shows as we knew them? Well, in a sense. I think it was even a little later than that, the turn of the century, that the American Kennel Club noticed its highest entry figures, highest registration figures. But yes, I agree that certainly now 1950s was a very, very active period. That's, that's actually when I started myself. That makes me very, very old, but still. <laughs> It, doesn't, it just makes you very knowledgeable, Bo. Just go with that. Well, I was very, very young, and I think I put that somewhere down as uh, yes. going to a dog show for the first time. It was totally fantastic. I realized right away that this was something that would be very important in my life. Well, again, I think about the history, and I, on the podcast, frequently talk about purebred dogs are history, and they are art, and they are that conduit between the past and the present. And that, to me, all of the era of the Industrial Revolution and what it brought into the 20th century and how it has transitioned into the 21st is fascinating to me. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, the dog shows of the past, of the 1800s, they were not at all like modern dog shows. There was often a Best in Show award, but that wasn't necessarily... Even defeated dogs could actually compete for it, and there were no groups, and there were not even necessarily breeds necessarily. In 1924, the American Kennel Club introduced new regulations, and since then, it's basically been the number of groups has increased slightly, and the number of breeds has increased drastically, but the regulations for competing, you have to be unbeaten to compete with a best of breed, and mm -hmm. you have to be a best of breed winner to compete in the group, and you have to be a group winner to compete for best in show. And even in my early days in the 1980s or something in this country, there was not even necessarily best in show. And then I remember very, very vividly that I had a group winner who was not allowed to compete for best in show because there wasn't a best in show at that show in the 1980s. And in the beginning, only half the number of shows had a best in show award, even though AKC encouraged it. Eventually, it grew up to present day. Now, that is very interesting. And I have been showing dogs since the mid 80s. And I. Mm -hmm. I'm relatively certain I did not know that. <laughs> the 
there was, I can probably find the name for you, that club where you won the group, and there was no best in show. The dog was born in the early 80s, so it would have been in mid-80s, something like that. Wow. Okay. That was pretty unusual even then in those days, and I'm sure that club doesn't exist anymore or <laughs> has introduced the best in show, but all clubs these days have a best in show. Yes, yes. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that, I sort of observed during the course, really, of this pandemic, honestly, is we didn't have as many dog shows. And that was really difficult for people who make their living at dog shows. Like, that was terrible. Right, right. But if you can see it through the prism of the positive, the quality and the number of dogs at the dog shows that were able to take place, people commented to me, I didn't make it to any of them, but people commented to me, how amazing it was to have 2,500 of the best dogs in the country because this was the only dog show anybody could get to. I think those figures will be interesting. This is a slightly different subject, but it would be really interesting, and I'm working on some figures now, how this COVID experience influenced dog shows. I think that you're right, and there were there were certainly fewer dog shows. Some states didn't have any dog shows at all, and some did, and the number of dogs at those shows on the one hand, people were keener again to get into dog shows. On the other hand, they were slightly afraid. So right. I'm not sure how it affected. I think it's too early to tell. I just thought that was interesting that people, you know, if there was only one dog show to go to, everybody went to it. And the competition was very, very mm-hmm. high level. Now, this is people talking to me that were at the show. But I thought that was fascinating. And talk to me about the comparison. I've talked to other people about this. and I'd love to have your insight on it say, the UK or Europe, where there are just fewer numbers of dog shows. There just aren't as many. Well, in this country, there were only a couple of hundred dog shows altogether, all breed shows, until the 1950s-something. Then it really started. These days we have, as you know, 1,600-something all breed shows in a non-COVID year. And uh, that is very untypical. In Europe, they have more shows than we think, but England is the model, as always. They have 25, they have always had 25. They hasn't increased the number. 25 general championship shows for all breeds. And they are a small country, but they have a lot of dogs. They have huge entries. They don't have as many dogs as they used to have either, but they had the five to 10,000 dogs. And these days they have over 5,000, pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And we talk all the time, those of us that are actively involved in the dog show world, you know, what's the answer? We've got too many dog shows, not enough dog shows, not in the right places. You know, everybody's got an idea, right? Oh, I don't think we necessarily need anymore. We certainly don't need, like you said, in a dog show in every town, in every corner of the world. It's much better that the seriously interested people can get together and can watch real breed judging. We have more than two or three dogs of every breed. Right. One of the things I love about the UK, and again, I'm just not as familiar with the FCI system in Europe, but the UK's idea that they have 25, as you said, general championship shows that we would think of those as a regular all breed show, but they have many more, correct? They have thousands of little fun shows, open shows. And they have also a number of breed club shows. Some of them are championship shows level. For my breed, Whippets, they have about 200, 150 or something like that at those shows. And they have at least more than five, probably about 10 Mm -hmm. breed club championship shows per year. And the open shows, right? What do they call them? B shows? Is that what they call them? 
they call them open shows, and they, okay. they are the same. They used to have, in my day, they had uh, limited um, sanction shows. I don't think they have those mm-hmm. any, anymore. But they have various limitations on them, and they certainly don't have any CCs on offer, and you need a challenge certificate, the CCs, for to become a champion. So they're not championship shows. So they're like what we would think of as a fun match. Yeah, basically they're like matches. Some of them are quite big. Some of them get bigger than the shows over here, you know, a couple of thousand dogs or something like that. I'm not as familiar with what's happening over there as I was, but their figures have diminished a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Well, across the board, we were talking a little bit off air. You know, this is welcome to 2021, right? We have Nintendo, right? right? <laughs> yeah, right. There's Xbox. There's things for people to do. Thousands of people watched dog shows in the early days. There were 15,000 of the first dog show in the mid-60s, and there were 50 million people watched the latest 1950s, 60s, those party movies before mm-hmm. the feature film in theaters. And I don't know that that is going to happen again. People didn't have Nintendo then. They didn't have the internet then. Right. And there was less competition for the public mind, I think. And I think that that speaks to our junior showmanship numbers are down and all mm-hmm. of those things. The thing that is, to me, encouraging is we still see significant viewership of dog shows like Westminster Kennel Club and the national dog show that's going to happen tomorrow. We're recording this right. the day before Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. And so, you know, people still watch those by the millions. I think the fact that we have new media, they didn't have TV in those days. And right. with the fact that we have Westminster on TV and it's a wonderful program to watch. Well, I find all sorts of people, even people who are not generally interested in dog shows, watch Westminster. And you can talk to pretty much anyone about Westminster and you get a response so people know what it is. And that's very, very, very encouraging. And the Westminster viewership figures are really high too. Right. So there is still some lingering interest. It's the transition then from, oh my gosh, I saw this on TV. It's the greatest thing. Like your first day at your first dog show, my first day at my first dog show. Right. It doesn't transition then into follow through. These folks aren't necessarily rushing out and buying a purebred dog so they can go to Westminster too, right? (laughs) Well, I think it's a pretty rarefied sport in many ways. I mean, they make it fun sometimes, and I think it's fascinating. I think there is nothing like sitting with a catalog and watching a a bunch of dogs of the same breed being judged by an expert. That's totally fascinating. But most people don't think so, and I think you need a special type of interest or a mind or something like that. Maybe you have to just be a little weird to do the light <laughs> to enjoy it, but I, I certainly do. You and I are a little bit weird. Like, I think golf well, is the most boring thing on earth, and how many million people do that? So there you go. Well, exactly. I think it's really boring, too. <laughs> Some things that other people think are pretty interesting, I think, are totally boring. And watching dog shows, I get very annoyed if people started to chat with me as I watch at a national specialty and sit to watch almost any breed. It doesn't matter what if it is a knowledgeable judge and a fascinating entry, I can have a wonderful time, fascinating time. It's the most interesting I know. But not that many people, even in dogs, are as interested as you would want in the same way. Yep. Some people are, fortunately, and that's very cool and interesting to talk to them about this. You know, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the history of the sport and we talk about the sport in other countries and all of that sort of thing, mm-hmm. the written critique and its usefulness and where and how it can be applied in the U.S. 
since it's not something that we can do in our two minutes per dog, I promise you. <laughs> well, it's very controversial, Some even in the FCI countries. Mm. For instance, when I judge in Sweden, where I was brought up and judge, I always write critique, and you have to be diplomatic. And people actually stand next to you and say, oh, yeah, absolutely, he's, he's definitely a little straight in shoulder, and, or he could have a longer neck or something like that. They want to hear that. They want to know. And I very much doubt whether most American exhibitors want to hear what's wrong with a dog. You have to be very diplomatic. It definitely is something you get to take away with you from the show, a piece of paper that says why your dog didn't do better than he did or why he did as well as he did. You know, but you have to be diplomat when you write a critique and you have to be slightly verbally gifted to write a critique at all. Mm -hmm. not very good if you only praise in the critique and you don't get a very high award or something like that. that. That's kind of very disturbing. I don't know, but I think it would be very interesting to see how it could be introduced in this country. I did the national specialty for and told AKC before and that I wanted to do verbal critique, and they said, fine, you have to ask permission for it first, and you can do verbal critique in the ring. And that had to be very diplomatic too, of course, because you use a lot of could be a little more instead of really dreadful yes. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dreadful. Dreadful is definitely not a good critique word. <laughs> right. I think it was fairly popular and people took it in good faith, maybe because they know me, whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. I just look at how dog shows have transitioned from really a comparison of breeding stock and I can't remember if it was on your dog show history Facebook page, or if it was just somewhere randomly on social media, my brain sort of amalgamates all of this and leaves me with no actual touch points of where I found it. <laughs> Talking about the differences and the changes, and you were mentioning the addition of Best in Show and the addition of the groups and the changes that have maybe unintended consequences of those additions and how it has changed the overall tenor of the sport. Right. It probably had, I think there have always been, it's very interesting to me today that there have always been people who are nuts about competing for best in show and campaigning dogs. I mean, you don't think of people in the 30s or 40s or something like that as campaigning dogs, but yeah, they were. Mm. You heard of that point, I think I mentioned him somewhere else, in 1860 or something from Wales, who was shown at least 60 times. And how did he even get to the show? And he was shown overseas too. And how do you even know where the shows were? It's amazing. And in 1950s, there were certainly not flights available as is today. And there were far fewer shows too. And so dogs still managed to win 20 or 30 best in shows per year. That was pretty amazing. So people were competitive even then. Mm. And so what year? You're the history guy. These things come off the top of your head. 
what year did the concept, you said 1924, is that when the concept of Best in Show? There were so many complaints about Best in Show judging. There were so many defeated dogs and so many controversies. I remember that was in England at Crafts. Reserve Best in Show lodged a complaint because the Best in Show winner had not competed in the breed. And there were several dogs of that breed who were competing. I can't remember. But there was general dissatisfaction with how it was performed and in 1923, AQC said, okay, we'll step back a little bit and we'll introduce new rules. And they started with those rules in 1924 and 25, and more and more clubs started implementing them. Since then, it's basically been, like I said, undefeated dogs only compete for best in show. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay, well, we're at the conversation about best in show. So perfect segue into, I've enjoyed this conversation so much with some of my previous guests and i understand that you and paul had a conversation about this mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i'm very excited to hear your favorite dogs of all time whether you saw them live or not in a dream best in show lineup all seven akc groups who wins each group and who goes best in show okay that, that's very interesting. And like you mentioned, Paul Epiani, my partner and mine, we've had rather intense discussions about this. And since this is about history, I was allowed to ask you about that. If could, yes. could even take dogs from the past that were before yes. my time. And in sporting dogs, it was definitely be a hard competition between the English setter from the 1950s, the Rockfalls Colonel. Everybody's mm-hmm. heard of him. He was the second dog, not the first dog, but the second dog after a boxer to win 100 best in shows. And the fact that he could do that in the mid-50s was pretty amazing. Right. And a dog I judged myself, Almanzo Larry Jr. He was the flat-coat retriever. He won in Sweden. He won Best in Show at the first Best in Show I judged in Sweden. I only judged Best in Show a few times, but then that was 1980s. Wow. Uh, and I think I would have to go with, well, it's very difficult to compare a dog you've only seen in pictures. Right. Colonel looks fantastic, fantastic. And most English setters from those days don't look very good, but he really looks like a wonderful dog. And Craig Sparks, who had a good time English setters in, I don't know when it was, but it was much later. He said that he saw some home movies of the setter and was absolutely, he thought he could still win. And that's pretty mm. amazing. I would probably have had to go with Larry Jr., though, because I know that he was good. You had your hands on him. That's always, Yeah, right? I've had my hands on him. It's difficult to compare because he won a lot. He was the first top winner from a very famous kennel. And for hounds, I would definitely have Vigo Romanov, the Borzoi from the 1930s. He looks fantastic in all the photos I've seen of him. Yes. Some dogs from the past, they couldn't at all cut the rate today, but I think he could. And a couple of greyhounds, too, from Magic or Marjorie, who won best of the group at Westminster three years in a row. It looks still pretty wonderful. And Southball Moonstone, who I think won something big in England, too. I can't remember. Well, she won a group at Westminster in 1935. Mm. But that Borza would definitely be my pick for the hound group, I think. Excellent. For working group, it would be pretty easy. I would definitely have the Great Dane, Etva von der Zalburg, born in 1925. She looks fantastic in the photos, all the photos I've seen her. And I just wonder how, I mean, she's pretty famous still. And I printed a picture of her and nephew. And I got, why didn't you print a picture of Etva instead? She was pretty wonderful. Terriers, it would be very, very difficult. I would love to see Melby's Chances Are, right. who was top dog in 1968. You've heard of him, right? Yes. 
Yeah, he looks wonderful, but it would be really interesting to compare him with the most wonderful dog I've seen recently, Torum Scarf Michael. Yes. Am I allowed to? Is that history of in 2000? Yes, absolutely. It would be between those two. I would love to see the old Carrier Blue and the uh, slightly more recent Carrier Blue. And I would love to see one of the Bull Terrier, White Bull Terrier, one of the best in Schwerkrafts in 1972, Abraxas Audacity too. But Torum Scarf Michael would definitely win that, no question. Yeah. For toy dogs, it would be very interesting. I would love to see the J-Mac Minpins from the 1970s. J-Mac's Impossible Dream, J-Mac Dream Walking. No. They were among the top. They were fantastic and they look fantastic on moves. But I think they would both be beaten by the Pekingese from England, Kavisham Cuckoo of Yam yes. from the early 50s. Yeah. He was fantastic and he was even better than his descendant in the U.S. who won Best in Show Westminster in 1960. But it would be really interesting to see him. I wonder if he would, would have enough coat for today. I think he would have correct coat and that's not very popular in, in, in right. today's America, I think. But really wonderful. Kavisham Cuckoo of Yam. And non-sporting, I would go for a miniature poodle I saw in England in 1960s or 70s, Britas Bonaparte. I would go maybe for Frank Sabella's favorite poodle of all time, Acadia's Command Performance, yeah. who was best in show at Westminster 1973. Or I would really go with the Chow Chow, Chunam Hang Kwong, who was best in short crafts and reservist in short crafts twice in 1935 and 39. I think, again, it's very, very difficult. How can you compare a, a poodle from the 70s with a child from the 1930s that you haven't seen? So I would probably go with the command performance. Yeah. Herding would be a little difficult. And corgis have changed so much. I don't think I could pick a corgi. I would definitely pick a Bellhaven Collie from Florence Ilch from the 1930s. Oh, yeah. Probably not the one who was best in show Westminster, but Bellhaven Black Lucason, who looks pretty fantastic. And the German Shepherd from the 1930s. Again, you can tell I'm very into the 1930s right now because that's why I'm posting on my, you know, going through my yes. magazines, 1920s, 30s, 40s, whatever. I'm top to only 40 now. And posting them on my Facebook page. Hugo of Cusalta, German Shepherd. Hmm. And of those dogs, I would have no problem at all going to Rolf Scarf Michael. I mean, he's the most wonderful dog I've ever seen. Wow. And I think I'm among a majority because yes. everybody loves him. And he was so wonderful. I competed against that dog. He still gives oh, me Oh, you did? Yes. Uh -huh. Did you actually win? Yeah, I saw a lot of bills behind. I was showing an <laughs> Irish Terrier at the time. Oh, wow. That must have been very, very hard to do. Yeah. Yes. It was a great Irish Terrier. It was a dog. I didn't get to show it, but it had won its national and a best in show. And I won uh -huh. multiple Terrier groups with it. Just not one bill came up from California. <laughs> okay. I thought that Carrie Blue was really wonderful. I mean, he was. It was fabulous. Bill McFadden who showed him. He had a lot of respect for the dog. and He showed him beautifully, but the dog was not easy to show. He was very temperamental no, he was and not. very headstrong. If you go back and listen to some of the podcasts I did interview Bill talking about that particular dog, I did an interview with Bill and Valerie and Andy Linton. So and Andy Linton, yeah, I know that. Yep. Right. And Bill's conversation about praying as he dropped to his <laughs> knee that <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it was very cool. I mean, it was uh, his performance at Westminster the year he won. He finally yes. did win after two years. Was pretty pretty wonderful. And I remember seeing him when he was first out in yeah. what was it in California? I think I think Morris and Essex definitely the two thousand. He was mm. fantastic. He was mm. really wonderful. And I love what Bill and Taffy, his wife, said about they didn't know what they had, and they wow, but they started grooming him, and wow, they realized, wow, he was very fantastic. <laughs> Come and look at this dog, it looks real, wow. They yeah. knew they had, they had something good, but they had something that outstanding. That was pretty fantastic. You can discuss what is history and what is not history. I thought about that quite a lot. Of course, what happened last minute is history to some. What happened last year? What happened 10 years ago? Why should what happened 21 years ago? I, I don't think that's really history. I mean, of course it is. But mm -hmm. to me, it doesn't feel like history if I was part of it. So uh, it stops in 1950, basically. Oh, my gosh. Now, that's funny, Bo. <laughs> it wasn't history yeah, well, if I was there. <laughs> I'm not sure what people mean by history. I mean, some young people have the effrontery of meaning what happened 10 years ago. I don't think that's history. That's yesterday for me. But 1950s and before that, it was, I wish I could be a fly on the wall and see some of those dog shows. Did you know that there were 206 German shepherds at the Westminster in 1920 or something like that? It was amazing. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, pretty fantastic. I would like to have seen those old dogs. It would be really fantastic. And if I could only judge from pictures, dogs I haven't seen, I would probably go with the Borzoi, the Vigo of Romanov. Right. AKC had an award for three years or for, for five years or whatever in the 1930s because the dominance of the English imports was so great that they honored the best American bred dog. And he yes. won that for three years in a row. And that was pretty, pretty amazing. Well, I am very excited because I know, because I'm going to ask you nicely, that you can send me photos of all of these dogs for me to post on the website so other people can learn. So that when they okay. hear you talk about the great Vigo, we can show a picture of him. I can show a picture of him. And I think I have put all those right. dogs I mentioned. Okay. Right. Because you are a treasure trove of history, Bo. That is why you're here. I'm very lucky because I have 100 years of bound kennel review or have popular dogs and I have English Dog World and I have a whole garage full of gold magazines and it, it's fascinating. And I should mention that I share that as much as I can on Facebook these yes, days. Yes, I will put a link. There will be a link. Yeah, that's good. Yep, so that they can find that Facebook page. Great show, Dogs of the Past. That was very nice. You will provide me with a link where they can go to buy your book because everyone should own that book. Oh, I don't know if it is. You have to go to Amazon and buy it for five bucks. It, 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 it's very, very sad, basically. It's not. We're I, not going to say it's sad. Stop it, stop it, stop it. It is a fabulous okay. book. I have read it. Everyone should own it. It is a very, very good book. I'm still surprised. I, I looked at the other day and I thought, Did I write? wow, I wrote that, huh? It's 600 pages, <laughs> you something like that. You put an enormous amount of work and effort into it and people it should several, know that it exists. Years, the, the fact that we got a publisher to actually do it and do it well was yeah. really amazing. Yeah. I still don't know how they were convinced that they could do that. They probably didn't recoup the cost. I didn't get paid anything, but big deal. It was a wonderful book and the reviews on something have to be my satisfaction with that. There you go. It's very good. And then as people like you like it, recently, that was 10 years ago since I published it, at least, mm. more than 10 years mm. ago. And last week I had a couple of emails from people who did research using it, and it's very, very good, very encouraging. Yes. Very cool. Absolutely. People I didn't think at all. 
Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, Bo, thank you so much. As always, I treasure our conversations and I will talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You guys, I am so excited. I've been wanting to create a live call-in show forever. So finally, I decided to just do it. (laughs) Dog shows, dog grooming, dog handling, dog breeding, you name it. Join the conversation live and get trusted answers to all of your questions. No more Facebook groups, no more 20,000 answers to the same question, just solid knowledge. Amazing. Start planning now. Visit the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page for a link to our YouTube Live Lightning Round with Laura. Be on the lookout for live chat opportunities, special guests, they'll be a secret, live calls from the audience, and more. Let's kick off the new year in pure dog talk style. Like the NPR of dogdom, pure dog talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech book. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.